This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala Rasulillah. I'd like to start by saying that I am in a serious time crunch. I don't know how I'm going to get out of my head in these 20 minutes what I really want to. So I'm first of all asking Allah that He gives me clarity in speech and that I don't overburden you or give you overload of information which in and of itself is not very conducive for proper learning or discussion. Even if I get to communicate not everything that I intend to, even if I do 10% of it, I'd rather it be done properly than me you know, burdening you with way too much information. Um, I wanted to divide this conversation into two halves, the first of it kind of theory and introduction and the other some practical examples that would be easy for anybody to understand. I know the, the vast majority of people sitting here in the audience are Muslims, I can see that very clearly, you're not very easily, you know, it's, it's very easy to distinguish you, uh, but uh, at the same time, yeah, distinguished Muslims, right? Anyway, so... Uh, but anyway, I think my priority is going to be the non-Muslim audience here. So if you don't hear me use a lot of traditional terminology, I'm giving you a warning ahead of time. It is not a deviation. It is simply a courtesy to those who are not familiar with Arabic terms and may not be uh, as accustomed to that kind of lingo. We say those kinds of things among each other, Alhamdulillah, MashaAllah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, etc., etc. And we say them and the, the, the ones who are not Muslim are like, what did he just say? And you know... So we're going to try to take it as easy as we possibly can. Uh, the first thing, introductory comments and, and just setting the groundwork for this discussion. Uh, I think everybody here knows what literature is and what literary appreciation is. Western civilization is a great contributor to, to the, the global cultivation of literature. Um, and part of every person's education in this country, not to mention anywhere else, part of that is language studies and literary appreciation and literature studies. For instance, all of us probably that went to high school here suffered through some Shakespeare, right? So that's, that's you know, at the very least, right? So um, be it novels or poetry or anything else, this is necessarily a part of one's education. And literary appreciation, you would have to say in the end, is a subjective thing. In other words, it's not a hard science. It's not something like physics or you know biology or chemistry or anything else where there are black and white it's what you can say is in the, it's it's an art more than a science right literature so it's in the eye of the beholder so what what could be amazing to one may be completely unimpressive to someone else and that's that's entirely possible which makes the job of the muslim even more difficult because the creed of muslims the the core belief of muslims is that the quran is unequivocally the most beautiful body of literature and the most eloquent form of literature in existence. This is our creed, this is what we believe with full confidence. Now there are two ways to go about this, when you're discussing this with someone who doesn't belong to your faith. I'm talking to the Muslims for a second. One way to do this is to try to convince them, no, look how amazing this is, this can only be God's word. But I personally am not convinced of that approach. And the only reason I personally am not convinced of that approach is, because it turns into a debate. And it turns into a back and forth. Rather, I'd, I'd like to take the approach of, let me, let me show you the beauty I've come to appreciate. And let me help you appreciate some things that I've come to appreciate. And this becomes a purely literary discussion. And from then, people can make their own decisions, or explore further if, the, if, they're, if they're in, their, their curiosity has been sparked. Now this is, not, this is a conversation that took confrontation away from the picture. 
It's entirely inquisitive and it's entirely informative. So that's the approach I'd like to take, inshallah, or God willing, okay, inshallah, um, in discussing the literary aspects of the Quran. And the first and the most important almost puzzle that we have to deal with is that when we think about literature, we think about things that are written. Isn't that true? You think about a book, you think about a novel, you think about voluminous texts, etc. Things that are documented, written, and published. And when you think about written works, certainly it's not the case that when a written work comes out that you publish the first draft. That never happens. When you write something, you come up with an, you, you know, you get it reviewed, you read it, you check it yourself, you know, you read it over again and you make Corrections, you take away redundancies, you take away, I don't know if this verb best fits this paragraph, or maybe I repeated myself too much here, or maybe this is a run-on sentence. You guys do this when you write term papers, don't you? You know, you, you hand in your first draft to your English teacher, and he or she says, no, you know what, this needs a little bit of work. Fix it up and then hand it in. So you come up with your second, third, fourth draft, you still get a D, but that's okay. You went through an editorial process. What I'm trying to say is, it's natural and expected that in literature, there be what's called an editorial process. That's natural. That's why even in the best-selling books, on the first page you have this foreword, where the author, is, or acknowledgements rather, where the author is saying, thanks to my uncle, my cousin, my professor, my this, my that, or the other, who all told me I can't write for my life until I finally fix this book up so I could sell a few copies. Right? But there's this, this acknowledgement of the editorial process. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all of this and not going to the Qur'an directly is the Qur'an was delivered to its first audience not in the form of literature. It was delivered to them in the form of speech. It was in the form of... It's an oral tradition. Now what's the fundamental difference between written communication and oral communication as I'm engaged in with you right now? Probably as we speak, I've, done, I've probably thrown in a number of Ranan sentences. And if I was looking at a transcript of my own of this speech, I'd probably have to edit it. Because when I speak, it's natural for me to make mistakes, or repeat myself, and you're expecting it from me too. It's, nobody speaks perfectly eloquent, grammatically pristine English all the time. We make mistakes and it's natural. But when you write, you have a chance to fix what you're gonna say. Isn't that true? Now the entire Qur'an is revealed and delivered to its first audience, believing and non, that first audience does not come into contact with it like a piece of paper they have to read. It's not that way. It's delivered to them in the form of speech. And now the first question that comes to mind is, in which of these two means of communication is there more possibility of error? That's the first natural question. When you speak, is there more possibility of error? Or when you write, is there more possibility, possibility of error? I think the, the answer is unanimous in this audience. What is it? It's in speech. Naturally, when you speak, you can make mistakes. You can have gaffes, as we learn in politics. Right? Somebody's political career can end because of what they say on the mic. Now, had they only stuck to the script, maybe they would have won the election, but you know, they, they opened their mouth. So now, we understand this in real life. And so the, the skeptics, the people that are trying to dismantle, dis, uh, really, the efforts of this man, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, may peace, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, this messenger, who's claiming that these words are coming out of my mouth, but they don't belong to me. The author is divine. Now he's making this tall claim, obviously the people that are listening and don't believe him, or are skeptical, are gonna try to find something. Aha! That's divine too, that mistake you just made? Or what about this? You said this before, now you contradicted yourself, etc., etc. These kinds of things were something they would be looking for. And we know this from Arab history, even pre-Islamic history, that the Arabs were very keen on picking each other's language apart. 
it would be very sensitive to how a person speaks. So now keeping that in the background, I'm going to give you four or five practical examples. Practical examples of what is talked about as part of the great body of literature that is the study of the eloquence of the Qur'an. By the way, this is, you could call a PhD thesis, the study of the eloquence of the Qur'an is kind of a PhD thesis that has been a pet subject in Islamic studies for centuries. So you have literally hundreds, and th- hundreds of thousands of scholars from across continents that have dedicated 10, 15, 20, 30, sometimes 40 or 50 years of their life to studying this one subject, the eloquence of this book, which in and of itself wasn't even a book, it was a speech. It was a speech. So but we're gonna just take a small sampling of, of a few examples and try to appreciate what, what these people are talking about. There are two kinds of, I'm not gonna say chapters, I'm gonna get you guys used to another term, it's surah. Surah, okay, S-U-R-A, if you're gonna spell it out, S-U-R-A-H. That's the term. Instead of chapters, we're going to call it surahs. And the Qur'an is made up of how many Muslims here? 114, 114 surahs. We're not going to say chapters. Now the reason we don't say chapters, by the way, how much time do I have left? I need to keep track of mine. Ten minutes. Awesome, I'm on time. Okay. So, there are two kinds of surahs. They're early, you can call them pre-migration and post-migration. Now what do Muslims call these? But what I mean by pre-migration and post-migration is in the Prophet's struggle, in Muhammad's struggle, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, may peace and blessings be upon him, when he first delivered this book to his original community, to his native community, they tolerated it for a period of about ten years, about a decade or a little more. They tolerated it, and it came to a point where they were pretty much ready to kill him, necessitating his migration. So there are portions of revelation that are pre-migration, and there are portions of it that are post-migration, you, if you want to put proportions on it, about two-thirds of the Qur'an is pre-migration. And about a third of it is post-migration, in terms of just volume in surahs, okay? Uh, now, I'm going to talk to you about the biggest surah of the Qur'an. That's what I'm going to talk to you about first. The biggest surah of the Qur'an. Now what is it, folks? Yeah, this is surah number two. Surah number two. And surah number two is made up of how many... I'm not going to say verses. I'm going to give you something new for your vocabulary. Instead of, you know when you say verses of the Bible? Right? Or sentences? Instead of verses, what, what term are we going to use? Ayahs. Ayahs. You can even use the English plural. It's okay. It's not sacrilegious. Ayahs. So you have surahs, which is the Quranic version of what? Chapter. And you have ayahs. Ayahs. A-Y-A-H-S. A-Y-A-H-S. Ayahs. Which literally means a miraculous sign, by the way. The word ayah means a miraculous sign. So we say each surah is composed of a set of miraculous signs. We don't call them verses, okay? Now, this surah, this biggest surah, number two, is made up of how many ayahs? 286. This is the biggest one in the Qur'an. It's made up of 286. I'm not going to say verses. What am I going to say again? Just so I know you know, ayahs, okay? 286 ayahs. Somewhere in this surah, the ayah occurs, the, I'll recite the Arabic first, and roughly translate after, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا Thus we made you a middle nation. One of the utterances in this surah, that's found in here, is thus we made you a middle nation. Now what's the Arabic word for middle? Wasat. The Arabic word is wasat, you don't have to know that. But know that this statement, this declaration occurs in this surah. Now the question is, once again, I'm reminding you, this surah, was it written 
Or was it delivered in the form of speech? Speech. And also, as a historical comment, it wasn't delivered at once. It took almost 10 years to be revealed. So this, this one surah was coming piecemeal. And while it was coming down, pieces of other surahs were also being revealed. And the messenger would instruct his companions, these ayahs belong to this surah, and those ayahs belong to that surah. But when the whole thing is said and done, Baqarah, the second surah, is made up of 286. And in ayah number, listen to this carefully now, in ayah number 143, in ayah number 143, the Lord says, we made you a middle nation. How many ayahs in this surah again? 286. And where does he call us a middle nation? In the middle. In the middle. Now how do you... I understand if you're going to do this in writing. I understand if you're going to do this in writing. How do you do this in speech? And by the way, at the time, there was no concept of ayah number. Like I told you, ayahs, there are 286 ayahs, and there's 143 ayahs. At the time, they never said, haven't you read ayah 12 of chapter 35? They didn't talk like that. They just recited the ayah. They didn't have this number scheme. When did this number scheme become part of the Qur'an? When the Qur'an was finally put into book form. But the generation we're talking about doesn't have a book before them. They don't have that before them. They're, they're memorizing this, and it's completely and entirely an oral tradition. So that's one small example. Here's another small example. Just bit, tidbits. I'm not trying to prove to you that it's a miracle. Just appreciate the subtlety. In one place in Surah Al-Ahzab, in Surah number 33, this is easy to appreciate. He says, I'll, I'll recite the Arabic first. مَا جَعَلَ اللَّهُ لِرَجُلٍ مِنْ قَلْبَيْنِ فِي جَوْفِهِ Allah, the one to be worshipped and obeyed, did not place two hearts inside of any man. I'll say that again. Allah did not place two hearts inside of any, what did I say? Man. So obviously, who's being excluded here? Women are. Now if He said, He didn't place two hearts inside of any human being, now that would have been inclusive, wouldn't it been? But He used the word rajul, which is exclusive of women. It's specifically referring to men. And what's even more peculiar is the rest of the passage deals with women. It's very interesting. The rest of it deals with spouses and all of that. But the first part of it is particularly assigned to men. The other thing that's also peculiar, and I want you to remember, is that when hearts are mentioned, now where are hearts located? In the chest. And this is actually a figure of speech used in the Qur'an all the time. Al-Qulubu fi sudur Hearts that are in the chests. In other words, the Qur'an commonly mentions that the hearts, that are, the hearts are placed inside the chest. But in this particular ayah, I'm not going to say verse, ayah, Instead of saying he didn't put two hearts inside the chest of any man, he used the word jawf, which refers to the entire body. It's not a restrictive term to the chest. He said anywhere inside of him, he did not place two hearts. Now this is the two peculiarity, peculiarities I wanted to bring to your attention. And this is kind of obvious. Because a woman can get pregnant. And if she does, she can have two or more hearts. But when she has those two hearts, they're not in her chest. But they are inside of her. So jawf is more appropriate. Subtlety in language. Subtlety in language. And let's bring something closer to home to our, uh, to the, especially the Christian audience that may be listening. The nobility given to Jesus in the Qur'an. I'll give you one remarkable example of it. Which nation was Moses sent to? The Israelites. Everybody knows that? The Israelites. Who's the original audience of Jesus? The same nation or no? The Israelites also? 
Yes, okay. Now, in, in, I believe this is the 61st surah. Surah number 61, As-Saf. There's one ayah dedicated to Moses addressing his nation. And the next ayah is dedicated to Jesus addressing his nation. Keeping in mind that both of them, even though there's a big time gap between them, essentially are addressing which nation? The Israelites. They're the same nation. Okay. Now listen carefully. I'll again recite the Arabic first and go to the English. وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ يَا قَوْمِ I won't even go further. Just this part. When Moses said to his nation, begin quote, My nation! Addressing them with what words? What was the first words used to address them? My nation. Ya qawmi, my nation. Okay. I'm not even going to tell you what the rest of it is, that what he said to them. That's not the point in this discussion. Let's come to what Jesus said. وَإِذْ قَالَ عِيسَى بْنُ مَرْيَمْ When Jesus the son of Mary said, Ya Bani Israel, Sons of Israel. Sons of Israel. Now what did he not say? What did Moses say that Jesus didn't say? Okay, so Moses says my nation, but Jesus says sons of Israel. Now, sons of Israel is another term used for the Israelites, isn't it? Or the children of Israel. You know what we learned from that in Semitic tradition? And in Arab tradition, as was carried originally by Abraham also, identity was given by the father. The nation itself is named after who? Not the mother, but the father, Israel himself. And actually in, in the Qur'an, all of humanity are called children of, not Eve, but... Adam, because identity, na nation, is defined by the father. And this is natural in most societies, the last name is given through the father. The, fa the father's name is acquired, even though there are exceptions. Now, what I'm trying to get at is, to be from a nation, your father should be from that nation. Isn't that obvious? To be from a nation, it's only expected that your father should be from that nation. So when Moses says, my nation, what's he actually saying? That my father is from among you. But Jesus, never in the Qur'an do we find him say my nation. Never. Every time he addresses them, what does he say? Sons of Israel. Now why would he never say my nation? Because he doesn't have a father. He is a miraculous, he's of miraculous birth of the Virgin Mary. They will, the Qur'an refuses to accept a human father for Jesus saying sons of Israel. Subhanallah. What the, the, the perfection of speech, the intricacy in speech. And by the way, in the previous ayah, in the previous ayah, when Musa was speaking, when Moses was being spoken of, you know what the Lord says? He says, وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَى لِقَوْمِهِ When Moses said to his nation, the phrase added was to his nation. Do we find that when Jesus was spoken about? Nope. Because that would be inappropriate. That wouldn't fit. How much time do I have left? Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay, so I could fit in like one more. You okay with one more? I think we could pull off one more. Alright, some of you have heard me talk about this on YouTube. I don't care. Okay. <laughs> I get this all throughout this convention. Whoever, aren't you the guy on YouTube? Like, yes, I'm the guy on YouTube. Yes. So, <laughs> even if they're referring to some cartoon or whatever. Anyway, so here's what I want to share with you. I'm going to give you, those of you that are taking notes, write this in English. Declare the greatness only of your master. Declare the greatness only of your master. It's a beautiful declaration, isn't it? To proclaim, declare the greatness only of your master. The Quran says this in the words, وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ 
وَرَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرُ Now, the word, the first syllable, even those of you that are even a little bit familiar with Arabic, wa. That's the first sound you heard. When I recited the Arabic, you heard wa. Now what does wa mean? Anyone know? Yeah, it, except it means and in modern Arabic. And in classical Arabic, that wa sound had 21 different benefits. One of them being and. But another one being what's called istinaf. The English equivalent being the start of a new sentence. You know how in English you start a new sentence with a capital letter? Well, the ancient Arab can do that with a wa. If they say wa, it doesn't necessarily mean and. And this is why those of you that read the Qur'an in translation and see a sentence beginning with and, you say, I learned in third grade, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> but I guess he's Allah, he could do it. <laughs> it's not exactly and, it's something else. It's something more. Okay. Now keeping that sentence starter aside, what's left? Declare the greatness only of your master. Now, رَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرُ Those of you who know Arabic, ra is the first letter. فَكَبِّرْ Ra is the last letter. Rabba. What's the second syllable you heard? Ba. فَكَبِّرْ What's the second last syllable you heard? Ba. رَبَّكَ What's the third you heard? Kaf. رَبَّكَ فَكَبِّرْ What's the third last you heard? Kaf. In other words, the Qur'an declares the great, tells us to declare the greatness only of your Lord and it's spelled in a way that is the same backwards and forwards. It is spelled backwards and forwards identically. In English we call this what? Anybody know? Yeah, it's called a palindrome. Now in English we also have palindromes. We have race car. <laughs> we do. Race car is pretty cool. All right, the, the, the longest one I know in English, other than Bob, is um, a man, a plant. It's put in book form, and scholars of the Qur'an are obsessed with every word of it, trying to explore its meanings. They come across these treasures and they sit back and say, Whoa, word of God. You know, they just, they're taken back by it. They're, they're, they're amazed by it, right? Now these are the kinds of things that are talked about at length in these old Arabic books that are nowadays collecting dust. Or are on websites, now they're posting a lot of books online and stuff like that. But much of this isn't translated. Much of this exposition of the beauty of the Qur'an and its literary appreciation isn't translated. And I, I just, because we only have 20 minutes, I wanted to give you a small sampling that would give you, give you at least some idea of what we're talking about here. There are several more things to talk about when it comes to literary appreciation of the Qur'an. And I certainly did not do the topic any justice, but I hope I was able to communicate at least some thoughts to you that will hopefully spark an interesting conversation in the QA session. Jazakumullah khairan wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah.